So we're gonna jump into the word for a little while. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 19, if you wanna go ahead and turn there. Um, it's gonna be on page 512, if you're using one of the blue Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to stand up and grab one of these blue ones around the room uh, as we get started. Uh, page 512, if you're using one of these Bibles, Luke 19. Uh, today we're continuing uh, a series called Belonging and Becoming, um, what it means to be the family of God. And uh, th- this is uh, just kind of a more topical series and just kind of looking at all the different ways and angles that we can about what it looks like for us to be the family of God. What does it look like for us to really belong to this family God has created? And what does it look like st- for us to become more fully everything that God has in mind uh, with this family? So over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how God is building this spiritual family together, that, that uh, a true transformation is not just found from spectating in the life of following Christ, but through participation. And as we engage and participate with God, we begin to experience all that God has for us. And so that means all of us have a part to play, uh, that God has gifted us and wired us uniquely and continues to gift us through spiritual gifts to engage with him in the world as we notice his activity. And so that's what we've been talking about uh, for the past couple of weeks. And today we're gonna shift for the next two weeks uh, to look at this idea of belonging and becoming the family of God a little bit differently. Uh, So we're we're gonna look at how the family of God begins to interact with people once they have really experienced this transformation in Jesus. Uh, What does it look like for us to interact with each other? What does it look like for us to interact with just the people in our lives? And so uh, what does it look like for us to come alongside and show grace and just meet people where they are, just like God has met us where we are? Uh, But then also, how do we sort of deal with conflict and sin and difficulty in our lives as we interact with people that we love and and kind of notice things that we want to grow in? How how do all those things work together? So that's going to be the next couple of weeks. Today, we're going to really focus on that first part, this idea of God just meets us exactly where we are, does not expect us to have it all together, but he enters into our lives in the mess. He meets us where we are and invites us into a, a new story, a new narrative, so that's where we're going to be going today, and we're going to be reflecting on this passage about a, a guy named Zacchaeus. Maybe you've heard of this story before. It's pretty popular, you know, the wee little man. Um, so we're going to be looking at that today. I won't sing the song because it'll be stuck in your head for like four weeks because it has been uh, in mine since, uh, since I read the text. But um, uh, I'm going to invite you just to pray with me, and then, uh, then we'll jump in. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your heart and your mind and... Uh, just the story that you want to invite us into today. Would you give us courage uh, to evaluate where we are at in our lives, to receive your grace and your mercy, but also to have courage to step into the narrative that you want to invite us into. So we we ask that you would do that in our midst today, Holy Spirit, uh, and and we uh, just desire to follow you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's read the text, starting in verse 1, Luke chapter 19. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature, hence the wee little man song. Uh, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried up and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that's the crowd, they, they all grumbled. He's gone to be, in the guest, be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Sometime later, verse 8, 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, I, I, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Is our word today from Luke chapter 19. So a lot of us have been taught a story or kind of an idea of this, this text in a way that I think is a little bit cheap. I, I don't know how you grew up. If you grew up in church or anybody go to VBS growing up, like there was the felt board and the song, which I'm not gonna sing. And, and it was just kind of this picture of this like small, jolly little old dude that like wanted to see Jesus so bad. So he crawled up in the tree and Jesus, you know, saw him. And I think there's a lot more here. Um, I, I think if we get into this narrative a little more deeply, there'll be some things that actually challenge us more than we might've expected. And so what I'm going to do today is sort of allow us, try to allow us to get into this story a little bit and kind of lay this narrative here. And then, then I want us to try and see, okay, how does, how does the narrative of our lives kind of line up? Uh, what does it look like when we compare the narrative we're living to the narrative Jesus might be inviting us into in this story? So it's not gonna be as like point heavy. I'm not gonna spell out every practical response for you. I really wanna kind of ignite our imaginations and just kind of consider what, what would it look like if, if we compared the narrative of our lives to this one? So let's talk about Zacchaeus for a few minutes. Uh, so the text, what, what was his profession? Not rhetorical, what was his profession? Tax collector, right? So we've heard a lot about tax collectors maybe in the Bible. Um, the way that you become a tax collector in, in, the, in the Roman Empire in this day and age was that you had to buy your way into it. So the Roman Empire is occupying the land of Israel, the Jewish people's land, and they have imposed a tax on these people. And they, and they didn't really want to use the Roman officials to tax. They didn't think that would go well. Uh, so what they did, they had an idea, let, let's hire some people from the, the Jewish people uh, to tax their own people, and we'll pay them to do it. And so they would auction off a certain number of these jobs to the Jewish people. And they said, okay, this is you know, X number of tax that we need from you, but you can charge however much you want and, and keep the difference. And so that's kind of how this would play out. And it, it, just kind of picture how this would, would play out in, in our day and age. Uh, just kind of think you know, if Tennessee were a country, let's just, let's just say that. Um, that some occupying force had, had sort of conquered us, some world power, China, Russia, whatever you want to say. And they said, we're, we're gonna tax all of you and we're gonna kind of take your money for our empire that's actually across the world in a different place. Um, and, and we're gonna hire some of you in this, in this literal community uh, to tax other people. Um, and, but you can charge whatever you want. You can keep whatever you want so that uh, you, you, you can kind of make some money. So Will, you, you get hired as a tax collector. And although it's only 20 bucks for me to pay tax, uh, you charge me 100 and you keep 80 so that you can start saving up for a new car. We'd be like, Will, oh my gosh, you are the worst person. Uh, you, you are working for this occupying force and stealing, literally stealing from me. Uh, so you can kind of feel why, why this might have been a difficult place for the tax collectors. They were not liked whatsoever. All, so all, 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 the, all the money that this guy Zacchaeus made was off scamming and cheating the people in his community, his neighbors. But it says that Zacchaeus wasn't just like a regular tax collector, right? He was the chief tax collector. So he's so good at ripping people off that he works his way up the pyramid scheme and he is at the top in this city called Jericho. He's running the town. 
So I think as soon as we know that, it helps us understand the story a little more deeply. I think we get a picture maybe of someone who's sort of living the, the American dream in some ways, has worked his way up all the way to the very top of the pyramid, has tons of people working for him. He has the job, the career. Um, he's got the house. Uh, he's got all the privilege. This paints Zacchaeus to be very different than the jolly little man who just did everything he could to see Jesus, right? This guy was probably hated by everyone for good reason uh, because he, he was known for, uh, for his thieving and for his cheating people. So, so he, he's up in this tree, right? And he, he didn't get there by accident. He's a man that plans well. Uh, he's climbed the ladder for a reason. And so this, this text gives us the impression that Zacchaeus so badly wants to kind of figure out who this Jesus person is that he plans ahead, right? Um, as, as terrible as he probably was, um, with all of his faults, he was very self-aware about his height. We can at least give him that. He was like, okay, I'm not gonna be able to see Jesus with this crowd. Uh, so, okay, there's a, a dust cloud down there. Okay, it looks like he's coming down the, okay, tree, probably gonna get up in the tree, see if I can see something unfold. Maybe he'll like fight with the Pharisees or something and I can kind of see what this is all about. So he climbs up in the tree, uh, climbs uh, just like he's climbed the ladder in every part of his life, right? And um, I actually got to go to Israel last year and see sycamore trees. They're a little bit different than, than what they look like over here if you're familiar, but uh, they have actually pretty low branches that kind of stem out from the trunk and a lot of leaves that are very big. So not only would it be easy to climb up in one of these trees, you could probably be hidden pretty well. Uh, so I, I would probably assume Zacchaeus probably wanted to get up in this tree, not, not cause too much focus on himself. He just wants to kind of be the observer. And I was thinking this week, um, how, often, how often do we kind of do the same thing? Like we're, we're, we sort of want to notice Jesus and kind of interact a little bit, but mostly want to be hidden. Like mostly want to stay at arm's length where we, you know, might go to church, might go to a Bible study, but still we're just like, I don't really want to encounter Jesus. And regardless of how much we want to stay at arm's length, I love in this story that, that Jesus still sees Zacchaeus. He still sees him. And he steps into his life uh, with, with love and with grace. And, and I wonder what it was like in this moment. You know, Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Jesus stops below the tree, starts teaching. He's like, score, like planned it out perfectly. The plan came together. Um, I'm gonna get to hear what he says. Jesus might have stopped in the middle of his teaching. Just kind of looked up. It's like, hey, Zacchaeus. <laughs> I don't wanna know if he was like, are you talking to me? It's like, no, the other Zacchaeus in the tree. Yes, you, Zacchaeus. Jesus looks up and knows exactly who he is, knows what he's all about. I love this. He, he just says, Zacchaeus, come down. And I think this is such an important phrase. We have to see what else is going on in the text, kind of the nuance that the text provides us. This is not just Jesus literally saying, hey, come out of the tree. I, th I think we can read more into this. He's looking at a man who has spent his entire life um, asserting his power and his dominance over others. Someone who's devoted his life to being above everyone, to being at the top to having uh, um, his job to be ripping people off, thinking only of himself. And it's that person in all of that context that Jesus says, okay, come down. Come down out of that life, come down from your position at the top um, uh, of the narrative that says success and fame and fortune, all of those are the way to find life and fulfillment. Just come on down. What's the next thing Jesus says? I love this. Hey, I'm inviting myself to dinner. <laughs> I'm coming over to your house. We don't do that often in our culture. It's very much like you don't invite yourself over anywhere. It's like you have to receive the invite. But Jesus said, I'm inviting myself 
to dinner. Sit around the table with me. That's the narrative that I want you to live. Come out of your place of power and influence and being over others and, and be around a table with, with me, eat with me. And you know, at first, Zacchaeus probably thought he was the stuff. Like he's probably looking at everyone. It's like, what's up? I'm going with Jesus. He's coming to my house, puts his arm around, well, puts his arm around him. And he's like, what's up? Me and Jesus are tight. And we don't know how long passes in the story. It kind of skips some time. Uh, but something changes in Zacchaeus. Maybe it was 30 minutes or an hour, four hours in the evening. We don't know. Zacchaeus probably invites all of his pyramid scheme to the, to the party, right? Over to his elaborate house. They're at a huge banquet table. And at some point, something changes. Something about Jesus causes this transformation in Zacchaeus. You can almost imagine that there, there's kind of a bustle at the table if you've ever been to a big dinner party. And someone just kind of stops and stands up and gets their glass and starts clinking it. And he's like, hey, I need your attention. I need to say something. You can almost see him kind of look towards Jesus and, and he calls him Lord. You can see the shift in his mentality already. Jesus is now uh, someone who is Lord to him. And he says, I, I'm gonna give everything uh, that I have, half of it away. And anyone that I've cheated anything, I, I'm gonna give four times back to them. Pay attention to this. Zacchaeus's response to Jesus at the table is not just, Jesus, thank you so much. You have, you have shown me this new life. You've brought salvation to me. You have given me this new narrative that I can live into. Thank you, Jesus. I'll give you anything, Jesus. No, he looks at the narrative that he's been living, the world that he has cheated, that he has lived into, and, and then he compares sort of the narrative that Jesus is living right next to him. He's like, something's gotta change. I'm gonna give everything away. I'm gonna restore and repair that which I've destroyed in my community. So if you're here today and you think that your salvation or your relationship with Jesus only has to do with you, I think this story has something to say. Being awakened to the narrative of Jesus transforms us in such a way uh, that, that it enacts change in the world that we live in with others. I'm not gonna to go too far into this, but I wonder what happens when we lay the narrative of our healthcare reform in our country next to this story and just kind of say, okay, what's happening here? Uh, one narrative might be of uh, kind of uh, elevating the, the people that are most privileged in our society at the expense of the marginalized. And one narrative maybe in this story is one of equity, of justice, of re uh, repair and retribution, or not retribution, repair, restoration is a better word. Think on that this week and call our, call our congressman if you want. So I think the way that the narrative of Jesus enacts social change, social ramifications in this story is really important. And what does Jesus call that? What does he say? He says, salvation has happened. Salvation has come to this house. That's what I'm gonna call this. At least that's what he says in this story. So there's so much more here going on than just a story about a wee little man up in a sycamore tree that got to eat with Jesus. This is a story about abandoning power. It's about letting go of the idolatrous American dream of acquisition of wealth and material goods for our own sake. But even more than that, I think this is a story about embracing a life at the table. Do you notice what in the story caused uh, the transformation of Zacchaeus? What did Jesus say? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what happened, what Jesus said. And, and I think that's uh, something that we can pay attention to and how Luke wrote this story. 
that it's not a, a sermon that Jesus preached like he does maybe in the book of Matthew a lot. It's a life that Jesus lived alongside Zacchaeus here. The conversation probably wasn't recorded. I'd probably turn it into a recipe like I do other texts in the Bible and say, okay, this is exactly what I need to say at this exact moment so that I can get someone to believe a certain thing. I think this is more about who Zacchaeus was with and the place at which he was with him. So, so what does it mean to be the family of God? How, how do we become this family that God is inviting us to be? I think it means that we sort of come down out of our own trees, not to over-allegorize the story, but we, there is a, a decision of Zacchaeus to abandon his own narrative. He has to come down out of the tree, out of being over others and embrace a life at the table. So I think it means that, that we abandon our own quest for power, for individualism, and we sit at the table with others in our lives and we live the narrative that Jesus has invited us into. You know, the, the table in an ancient context was very different than it, than it was today, even literally, physically. So um, tables were like a foot and a half off the ground. They didn't have chairs. Uh, so they would have pillows uh, around the table and they'd lay on their side and eat with the other hand. And then it was sort of a place where you just lounge and hang out for hours. Meals lasted a long time uh, because of the way that they would cook. And Luke, throughout the entire book of Luke, paints this picture over and over again that Jesus and the disciples most frequently uh, interact with people at tables. Uh, in other gospel narratives, there's a lot of uh, kind of on the hillside preaching and all these things, but read Luke sometime all the way through and see how often Jesus and the disciples are at tables with people over and over and over again. It's so like in Luke, Luke 10, where Jesus sends out the 70 into other villages. He doesn't say, hey, just go and preach sermons. He says, hey, go to a house, see if they accept you there, if there's peace between you and stay there for a while eat with them, get to know them, and then preach the kingdom of God. So all throughout the entire book, it's very interesting. Even after Jesus is resurrected in the book of Luke, Jesus comes back, what does he do? He eats a meal with them. He's at the table. I think this clues us into what Jesus might be inviting us into. I think our culture of eating is a little bit different, right? Uh, we live in a time where the table is not a central piece of, of relationship as much. Our lives are rushed. We bring home food and eat quickly. I think there are very few times for most or many of us where we prepare ingredients and uh, prepare a table and cook a meal so that others can come and sit and, and can talk. I think the table is a place where people can really be who they are. Jesus didn't try to fix Zacchaeus in this story. He met, he met him exactly where he was and, and he stepped into his life with love and with grace. I think the table allows us uh, to experience someone uh, as they truly are, to be able to step into their narrative, into their life, into their situations. And then we might be able to catch wind of what God is doing in that person's life. I think this way of living and interacting with, with others in the world doesn't have ulterior motives of trying to change or make people projects uh, to get them to believe a certain thing that we might believe. It, it treats them as like holistic people that have stories and wounds and narratives that, that we wanna get to know. One of my favorite quotes, I honestly couldn't find the origin of it uh, this week. One of my favorite quotes is, is that God is not interested in laying sod. God is interested in planting seeds. God's not interested in laying sod. God is interested in planting seeds. I know that's kind of trite, but he, here's what I get from that. Uh, God doesn't come in when we encounter Jesus and just rip up everything and then plant a finished product in us. That's not, that's not how God works. No, God plants seeds where we already are and he pulls weeds and, and he cultivates uh, the, the garden that, that we're living in. 
So what does it mean to be the family of God? What does it mean for us to step in uh, to this type of lifestyle? I think it, it means that we don't have to expect everyone to have it all together all the time. That we show patience and that we show grace uh, in the mess that we're all living in. We invite people to the dinner table, uh, people that are different than us, and we experience the fullness of life with them. And I think that experience, sitting at tables, listening to stories, breaking of bread, that's where the radical transformation can happen in someone's life. It's not a well-rehearsed sales pitch trying to convince someone that Jesus is Lord, although we believe that. Although we believe that, it's entering into someone's story and engaging the, the fullness of who they are through real relationship. What do you think the implications would be if the family of God in this world uh, set aside real time for these types of human interactions at the table? Not expecting people to have it all together or only interacting with those who are most like us, but sitting down at tables with people, encountering them in their real stories like Jesus did with Zacchaeus. What would, be, what would happen in your community and in your life if, if we sort of recovered this art of being a neighbor? or an art, the, the, the vision of the table maybe. I think for one, the church would look much different. Rather than privatized, individualized, seeker-sensitive, preference-based religious communities, uh, I think um, it, it would look a lot different. It would look a, a lot more like there's real relationships happening. And I think this is why people were so angry with Jesus in the story. He was sort of upsetting the, the cultural religious norms that they were comfortable with, about who you would eat with, who you wouldn't eat with, what religion looked like and what it didn't look like. And I think this story would upend a lot of how we view church if we were to really embrace how Jesus was living his life among others. I think everyone expected Jesus to come in and just sort of condemn Zacchaeus, perhaps the most hated man in their community. And Jesus just meets him right where he is. Hey, I, I'm, I'm interested in you. I would love to get to know you. Let, let's go eat dinner. Let, let's share life together. Let's be in relationship. Jesus gives us a higher vision, one of laying down of power, one that meets people exactly where they are, a vision of the table. So, so here's my charge for you today, uh, if I had an encouragement to give you. And if you want some practical things, I can give you a book that's really helpful in this conversation, but at least for today, um, if you want to experience God's activity and transformation in your life in a new way, and in the lives of the people that are around you, if you wanna recover some of the movement of God that, that is active in the world, I wanna encourage and challenge you to reconnect with and re-enter your neighborhood or your apartment complex or your dorm, to engage with your neighbors, to meet them at the table in real relationship. This is one of the hardest things for me to do. It is just honestly to let you into how I interact with this. I would prefer my home be sort of a, a haven from the world rather than an outpost for God's activity in my neighborhood. I just sort of wanna get away, I've been busy, I'm in grad school, so I have to say no to more things than I can say yes to right now, and I just kind of want to not do that. <laughs> but I think, I think this story is really important for me because it reminds me that, that God is always active and always doing things around me. And if I'll just be aware and make myself available to pay attention to that activity, there's a lot of transformation that could happen in my own life as I get to meet other people and hear their stories but also for other people to see perhaps a glimpse of what it looks like for me to live the narrative of Jesus at a table alongside someone else and to maybe catch wind of what God is doing in those conversations. If you're here today and you feel like your narrative is sort of like Zacchaeus, 
sort of been living for yourself, for your own narrative, for your own desires, for your own dreams, trying to find fulfillment in, in everywhere but through the person of Jesus. If, if you feel sort of your heart burning, like Jesus might meet you where you are today, I wanna encourage you to embrace that. He sees you and he loves you so much. Regardless of how messed up your life is or how, like, how many mistakes that you've made or how you enter into this place on your spiritual journey, like God sees you and he loves you. And, and he invites you into a different narrative, one that lays down our own privileges for the sake of others, to be at the table with others. I want to invite you to open yourself up to him today, to receive that grace, to receive that love that Jesus uh, desires to give you. Let's pray.